Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hey, what's up, Roto-Grinders, and welcome to Sharp DFS Analysis here on Roto-Grinders.com. My name is Chris Jamino. I'm coming to you live from Nashville, Tennessee tonight, and we are talking week number 11 in the NFL from a Vegas and advanced analytics standpoint. And joining me to do some of this analysis this week, we've got two of the very best in the business. We've got Warren Sharp and Chris Raybon. Warren, what's happening today? Hey, how are you guys doing? Who, man, pretty, pretty good. You know, we're raging down here in Nashville for the RG party, so we're getting ready to get uh, absolutely lit tonight and uh, throughout the weekend. It's going to be good times had by all. Of course, uh, Warren is from Sharp Football Analysis and SharpFootballStats.com. I want you to go ahead and head over there right now because there's some good stuff going on, Warren. I think you got a little promo going on, right? Uh, yeah, at SharpFootballAnalysis.com, we have the uh, – actually, you do it once a year. It's a free NFL promo. Uh, you can get everything that we do for the NFL this week for free. So that's at SharpFootballAnalysis.com. Yeah, that's great stuff. And, of course, if you want some more great stuff, you can head over to 4for4.com where you can find the stuff from Chris Raybon, the senior DFS editor there. Chris, what's happening? What's going on, guys? I'm uh, kind of disappointed I couldn't get to join you for the uh, lit activities tonight uh, in Nashville, but uh, just getting back from Cancun earlier this week, so uh, kind of had to take it easy for a little while. That could be the first time I ever used that word in a sentence properly, but uh, it's definitely <laughs> going down, that's for sure, here in Nashville. So like I said, good times uh, about to happen down here. Of course, you want to check out RG Premium. Great stuff happening there too. Uh, combining a bunch of different resources is never a bad idea in DFS. And we've certainly got plenty of those here at RG. Get multiple sports for one price. Pretty damn good deal. But now we're going to talk uh, strategy first like we do every week, guys. And Warren, what we're going to talk about this week is correlations and hedging. And basically, this is kind of inspired by last week's overexposure by many players uh, in the DFS crowd on a guy like Bilal Powell. And that's really just sort of getting married to the idea of one side of the game. Obviously, there's tons of merit to doing this when you are correct and when you are incorrect. Something like hedging could help you uh, find some success when things go wrong on your main position. So maybe talk about this from the betting side of things in the biggest market at first. I mean, how is hedging implemented by your group? And conversely, is there any lessons to be learned by correlating games if you can find two bets that say uh, are likely to happen at the same time? Yeah, so let's attack the second one first. Uh, correlation is definitely massive. Um, if you can find, for instance, games that have where, with a lower total game where you like the underdog, chances are in a low total game, the underdog, especially if the spread is at a certain level, and the under are 
If one of them hits, the other one is more likely to hit. Um, that's what correlation basically implies. And so for, you know, for sports betting, they kind of outlaw some of the really correlated sides because the books, once again, they hate exposure, they hate risk. So they're going to try to limit that exposure and risk as much as possible. So correlated parlays in particular is what they try to regulate against. And they won't let you bet. Um, let's say if, if a game total is really low, like uh, let's say it's Cleveland Jacksonville game. If the game total is 37 and let's pretend Cleveland is like 13, a 13 point underdog. I mean, their implied team total is going to be very small. So if you think that, you know, Cleveland's the right side there. Uh, chances are the under is probably going to hit because, you know, unless you think the game's going to go berserk and Cleveland's going to score a lot, which I personally do not, then Cleveland and the under are going to be correlated. And if you parlay those two together, you're going to have a much better shot at winning that parlay than you would if the total was higher. Um, and, and that's just the way correlated parlays work. So they try to limit and regulate against those. Um, in terms of hedging, you, there are guys, I wouldn't call it hedging necessarily, but there are guys who try to do a lot of middling and scalping positions. They take, for instance, um, on this New England Patriots game, we're going to talk about that momentarily. Um, if you got involved at 50 or 51 and you went over that number and now the total is up to 55, there are guys we've discussed on this podcast before who will just bet the under once they've got the over because they're looking for that middle shot. They don't want to, they want to limit their own exposure and they want to look for that middle shot. And that's one of the things that one of the uh, largest guys in the sports betting industry, Bill Krakenberger, who I work with extensively, he used to do that a lot more historically in the past, you know, when he was just starting out, it was a lot of scalping, getting on the right side early in the week, then buying off once the line has moved in your favor. Um, if you're able to get on the right side of line moves, it is extremely valuable, particularly in the NFL, because it opens up so many other doors and avenues for you to get off that wager if you want to and hope for a middle. Um, but at, lately, he has not really – he's gone against that strategy and instructed us to do the same. And, and the basic principle there is uh, I'm not going to get off a good bet. Like if I've got a good bet, let's say I took the over 51, and that's on a key number, and I went over the total, and now it's up to 55, that clearly says that the market agrees with you. You got a great number to start with. Why would you risk getting off of that to go under just for the odd chance that this game lands, you know, 52, 53, 54, or I guess, you get, you know, you would hit, hit just one of them if it landed 55. So he has gone against, you know, trying to, hedge or middle games as much as he did in the past and has found that to be more profitable for him in the long run. Um, so, yeah, I mean, from a betting perspective, definitely correlated parlays are great ways to capitalize, but I only recommend going for parlays if they are correlated in some manner. I'm never going to just parlay two completely unrelated uh, games or sides or totals if, if one has nothing to do with the other. But if they're in some way linked, and you really like you like them both to begin with, then parlaying them together is is a tremendous value if you're able to do that. Makes all the sense in the world, and that's why Chris correlations have become so popular amongst the DFS community in trying to make your lineup tell a story. Try to make the things that you are putting on an individual outcome for a particular lineup card make sense to happen together. You want to have uh, correlated pass catchers, and I know this is work that you've done extensively. Uh, over at 444. So what can you talk about as it relates to correlations and why they're so valuable? Well, if you're making a lineup and you have nine slots to fill, um, and especially for a lot of people who um, aim to win tournaments or get to the top of those leaderboards and some of these contests that have more top-heavy payout structures, you know, filling nine slots and hitting on nine completely independent outcomes can be very difficult, especially when you're also trying to do that within the context of a salary cap. And so what you want to do instead is you want to try to get at least a, a fraction of your lineup of the slots in your lineup correlated in some way so that if you hit on one of your pick, maybe you actually really hit on two or three of your picks. And then you do that a couple of times and all of a sudden you're looking at hitting, you know, maybe three different outcomes correctly um, and have, you know, three players per outcome correlated rather than hitting on nine independent outcomes. So that's kind of why 
correlation is so valuable, um, especially the most popular one, of course, is quarterback receiver correlations. Those are from the work that I've done and I'm sure everyone else has will agree that that's the most correlated pairing in the NFL. Um, we also have underrated ones or, or overlooked ones sometimes, I think, depending on what site you're playing. So on Fanduel, for example, kicker defense is actually the second most highly correlated pairing besides a quarterback and his receivers. Um, then you have uh, opposing passing games are extremely highly correlated. So opposing quarterbacks are actually very highly correlated. Um, not that uh, I don't think any sites or many sites, any of the mainstream sites still allow you to pick two quarterbacks in the same lineup. But as far as your overall portfolio in terms of your tournament exposure if you like one quarterback in a game um, you can kind of build your your portfolio around a certain games and attacking both quarterbacks in those games um, you know I'm sure that would have worked with the uh, Deshaun Watson Russell Wilson Seattle Seahawks Houston Texans shootout a few weeks ago where we saw the Millie Maker uh, winner also finish in second place with essentially the same lineup but the quarterback from the other game um, in that in that lineup so um, that, those correlations are important, you know, wide receiver correlations on opposing teams, uh, especially the, the team top pass catchers are highly correlated. And uh, another correlation that I don't think people are as familiar with or overlook somewhat is the running back and quarterback are actually positively correlated. A lot of people think they're negatively correlated and they certainly can be in a given game, but over the long run, running backs are actually more likely to follow a quarterback's production and vice versa than they are to to oppose it. So you have those situations where um, we've seen this a lot, especially on DraftKings lately, where um, the salaries are a little more close together. The salary floors have been raised. It's a little tougher to hit a big score. I've talked about that in my Raybonds review column over the last few weeks, that the average score from the winning Millie Maker lineup is down considerably in 2017 from the last two years, as is the ownership percentage um, to a lesser extent. And what that's saying is it's tougher to get value. It's tougher uh, to find these picks. And what you want to do instead, you correlate a lot of times. I think you saw it last week where you had Todd Gurley and Jared Goff in the winning lineup. Now, Todd Gurley didn't have an amazing game. I think he scored under, just under 20 DraftKings points, didn't score a touchdown. But um, just because the Rams offense did well, if you had, you know, Goff with his top pass catcher in Robert Woods and you added Todd Gurley to that, you add the Rams defense to that. And now you're in a situation where you have these correlations and the Rams have a big game and, um, now you've hit on three, four of your, your lineup slots instead of having to kind of nail eight other slots because you just had Jared Goff or seven other slots because you just had Goff and, and, uh, and Woods or something like that. So correlations are extremely important in that sense of just kind of narrowing down the amount of uh, situations that you have to nail independently in a given lineup. Yeah, and as far as hedging goes in DFS, I think that you will see some of the top players – you know, largely take heavy positions on certain spots. But in your mind, is it wise to take what's, you know, some sort of a hedge stack or hedge situation in, in your lineup? So I, I would think that there's probably tons of merit to that in DFS, but uh, I, I'm not admittedly well-researched on this. What do you know about hedging? Well, I think it really depends on what outcomes you're hedging against. So that, that goes into what type of player you are as an individual player. Um, for example, we could start with this uh, – some debate over okay in cash games should you roll out one lineup or should you roll out multiple lineups and I think that goes into what kind of player are you if you're playing strictly head-to-heads you're going to get your kind of um, diversification so to speak by the different opponents that you're going to play so you can roll out what you think is the optimal lineup because you you just want to have the best lineup possible and you're not going to ever get a zero um, because you're going to play a diverse range of opponents some of which may do worse than you even on your worst day um, if you're playing a different type of contest, maybe you play all double ups or 50-50s, maybe you do want to, to hedge a little more because if you, if you mess up that one lineup, if somebody gets hurt or whatnot, you're going to get a zero for the day. So, you know, hedging like that works. And then in, in tournaments, I think you can hedge a bunch of different ways too because you have these multiple entries. You can enter certain contests up to 150 times. So, for example, if you're really confident in an offense, let's say the – Kansas City Chiefs this week going against the New York Giants. If you're really confident in that offense um, and, there's, and there's two main players that you're thinking about or, or three main players or you like the running game and the passing game, but you don't know exactly how, let's say, the touchdowns are going to shake out or whatnot, you can kind of build a tournament portfolio around, okay, I want half of my lineups to contain the Kansas City running game and have Kareem Hunt in there. And I want the other half to contain Travis Kelsey, maybe Alex Smith, maybe Tyree Kill in that passing game. And 
I mean, if, if you if you hit, if, if you, you, you have 50% of your lineups kind of in business, if even one of those things hit, if both of them hit, you're kind of in business both ways. Um, obviously the risk is that, you know, not, neither of the situations hit, but that's why you would kind of do it in situations that you're really confident in. So um, I think there's definitely a, uh, something to be said for, for hedging in that sense in tournaments. Um, I, I don't think in, in cash games, like I don't, you don't necessarily want to just come like use a bunch of alternative lineups to what you think is optimal. Because if you just look at it from a probability standpoint, and I think that's really important um, to look at these outcomes in a probabilistic way. Um, if you, if you have, let's say a player and he's like a 60% chance to hit cash game value, right. And you're like a quarterback or whatever. And you think he's a 60% chance to hit cash game value. And now you say, Hey, well, I actually want to add, you know, add in a second quarterback to that. Cause you know, to, to hedge a little bit. Well, now the odds of both of those guys, even if that second quarterback is also at 60%, the odds of both of them hitting cash value are 60 times 60. That's only 36%, you know? So you've lowered your odds of kind of smashing the day by going away from your optimal lineup. So in that sense, hedging really, um, you know, that's kind of a con to hedging and, and a reason to not hedge. But in, I think it really comes into play a lot more in tournaments, again, where you have all these entries and you can kind of use something like the barbell strategy where you can kind of go, you know, you can kind of, you know, use your projected outcomes for one extreme and then kind of go against that with the other extreme or something like that. Or, or just, you know, take two sides in a situation where you don't know exactly how it shakes out, but you're confident that, you know, some like the, the team will put up a lot of points. You just don't know who's going to get them. You can kind of go with a bunch of different receivers in different lineups and kind of build, build it that way or running game versus passing game. But um, I think in cash games is really um, where you have to be careful when, when you hedge. And it's funny because I think people actually – do it the opposite way where people are less concerned at hedging in cash games. They feel safe kind of, cause they feel like, Oh, well, these guys are, these guys are decent plays. So I'll just play a whole bunch of them and I should do fine. Where in reality in cash games, you kind of want to put your best foot forward and, and in tournaments is where you're hedging a bit more because you have that um, advantage of being able to uh, your, your multiple entries. All you need is one to hit to really change your whole, your whole day. Whereas in a cash game, um, if you're wrong, it, it, even in a couple of spots, um, it's going to hurt you a lot more. I think we're going to have multiple opportunities this week to test both of those particular strategies, both correlations and the idea of, you know, potentially hedging a very strong outcome with an opposite outcome or something on the complete other side of that, because there's a couple of spots that look very, very tempting to go heavily on this week, Warren. And I think you're about to talk about one of them. It's in one of our high total games, only two on the week. There's the New Orleans game that's got a, a total over 50. And then you're looking at a 55 total here for Oakland and New England. And boy, that is really tough to look away from when it comes to week number 11 in DFS. Yeah, and um, allow me to get back to the point that Chris was just making with an alternative kind of out of the box strategy. And that is if you are playing in, a in some of these tournaments which have you know, large, very large prize pools and you're doing really well, and let's pretend that you're involved in one that has the ability to you know, choose some of the primetime games like the Sunday night or the Monday night game. Um, that is where I would look to do some hedging from the sports betting perspective. Um, let's say you're sitting there, and I don't know. I mean, you, these tournaments, you know, if you choose a game a tournament that goes through Sunday night football, let's say, um, and, and you're in very good shape. And we're talking about some life-changing money for a lot of people who are, like, close to winning some of those, uh, those tournaments. You know, you can bet in the betting market, even though your lineup is locked for the tournament, you can go into the betting market and start trying to hedge in that manner. Um, let's say you are big on Des Bryant in the Sunday night football game and, you know, you already smashed everything else throughout the course of the day. Um, you, you can hedge that via some player props, via the, uh, the game betting. I mean, if you look at correlations from that perspective, you can say, well, for Des to do well, these things have to happen. So if I want to hedge myself, I could bet against some of those things happening um, from the betting market. And then I can also bet against his player props, which, I mean, all the different sites usually have player props for a guy like him in primetime then that's a great way to, you know, ensure that you're not going to just lose everything if you don't have a great day and you drop so far out of the leaderboard. Um, you can hedge it a little bit from the sports betting side of things. So that's something to, you know, DFS guys should be aware of. Um, even though your lineup is locked and loaded and you're just kind of banking on this one guy to have a great day, you can, you can offset some of that if you want to, to lock in something for yourself um, via the sports betting market. Um, but getting back to this game here, uh, you know, the 
the game that I'm looking at is the Patriots game, as you mentioned, Chris. I, I think there's just a lot of opportunities for the New England Patriots here. If you look at the New England Patriots, they've played a number of very difficult opponents uh, the last couple of weeks, teams with offenses that are either struggling or just off kilter or just not very good to begin with. I mean, you look at like Tampa Bay and the Jets and the Broncos, those three offenses that they played recently, not particularly great. Um, and then you look at like two offenses that are better statistically, such as the Chargers and such as the Falcons, those coordinators and the coaching and the decision-making that both of those teams have is completely inefficient. I mean, we see jet sweeps, uh, you know, at the goal line for the Falcons. We see the Chargers refusing to use their most efficient wide receiving target and, and sorry, just receiving target in Hunter Henry. We see them using too much Melvin Gordon. I mean, there's just re returning kicks out of the end zone um, that they should be kneeling on, setting themselves up for bad field position. I mean, so much stupid coaching goes on on those two teams combined that uh, it really impacts their ability to produce. And so you've seen this Patriots defense look a little bit better than what they are. But let's first talk about a huge edge I think that I've uh, uncovered. And it's not something, you know, uh, unique to myself. Uh, I know a lot of different researchers have uncovered this this week, but it's the running back passing offense matchup for the Patriots edge over the Oakland Raiders. Um, there's just a massive edge here. The Patriots have played the number one most difficult schedule of opposing running back pass defenses. You can find that number up at sharpfootballstats.com. Uh, and they rank third best in the league in terms of their efficiency when they target these running backs in the passing game. The, the uh, Oakland Raiders have played the fifth easiest schedule of opposing offenses and actually the outright easiest schedule, um, I think it's since week three of the season. So they've played the easiest schedule. No team is ranked in the top 10. And now they go up against this Patriots team that ranks top three despite playing a ridiculously strong schedule of opposing uh, defenses. It's going to be the classic shock to your system because the Patriots target these running backs out of the backfield at a very high rate. And that's going to cause problems for this defense of the Raiders that isn't very good against them and doesn't really face many good teams who do it. Um, I think Rex Burkhead is really in line to have an excellent day. We've seen his uh, snap rate increase and his targets per route run is pretty consistent. Um, so I think he's going to be a pretty good weapon here. Um, you look at the other side of the ball. I mean, there's still good things to like about the Oakland Raiders offense in this matchup. I think you say that the New England Patriots, like we just mentioned, have not really played extremely strong, uh, extremely strong opposing offenses that really can bring a, a multifaceted approach. And so if you look at this game, you say, well, what's Bill Belichick going to try to take away here? Um, even if he takes away one of the key pieces, they're still going to have success through their other pieces. I mean, with big edges, I think, whether it's the pass game or uh, some elements of the run game. So, uh, and you have Jared Cook at tight end as well. So I think that there's options for the Oakland Raiders to produce. And the Patriots right now have this uh, – you know, tendency to give up yards but not points. And we talk about them in years past as being like, oh, they're the number one scoring defense, which is really a bunch of BS because that that's really dependent upon teams actually being able to convert in the red zone and overall quality of opposing offenses. And we saw last year in the playoffs, um, they didn't really play many good offenses when they went up against the Atlanta Falcons. Atlanta stomped them early in that game and built a huge lead. So I'm not suggesting that the Oakland Raiders are the caliber of the Atlanta 2016 offense, but um, I think they will be able to have some efficiency. You factor in that this game is being played at massive elevation. Uh, we're talking about Mexico City. So the, these defenses, even though the Patriots have been training for a week out in uh, at the Air Force Academy out in Colorado, that, that may or may not actually help them. Um, there's been different studies. Obviously, I would tend to side with whatever Bill Belichick ultimately decided to do because of how intelligent he is. But there's been some schools that thought that getting to that elevation as close to game time and then getting out of there is actually better than being at that elevation for a longer period of time if you're not accustomed to it. So we'll see how, um, how they're able to perform. But there's definitely um, – a factor I think that's going to be as a result of the elevation, you have field goal kickers who can kick it further because of that high elevation. You also have defenses that ultimately might get worn down and tired. Um, I did talk about all the matchup edges, but there's plenty. I mean, Rob Gronkowski should be able to dominate in this matchup. Um, 
I, I really like the running backs, obviously, for the New England Patriots. It's a question of who he's going to hit, but I like the fact that they appear to be a little bit more defined with Rex Burkhead's rules, so it's a little bit easier to forecast success for him in this game. Um, I, I just think that there's a lot of opportunities here, but you are talking from a sports betting perspective if you're looking at this game of, uh, you know, now it's a 55. And when I put it out, we got 51. Um, actually, you know, that's one of the most key numbers in totals is 51. So, um, it has moved four points off of that. Sometimes these things tend to get that back down closer to game time. So I would not be running when you hear this, you know, tonight to be, you know, going, Hey, let's bet the over 55 right now. I would consider waiting a little bit, but I definitely do think that this game has that opportunity to, uh, produce good fantasy, uh, prospects because of, the production that I anticipate on the field. Um, you know, like we always say, you don't just go after high total games. You go after high total games that you think are, are legitimately totaled high for a reason and have the potential to exceed that. And I think this game is one of those games that does have that opportunity and that potential. Yeah, absolutely. Just for some perspective on a guy like Sean Smith, who could be in the game this week because David Amerson has missed practice two days in a row. He has not been able to get on the field over guys like Gary and Conley, over guys like Dexter McDonald. So if he ends up getting matched up with a guy like Brandon Cooks, uh, you know, regardless of who Cooks is matched up with, I think there's some really good potential for him in this game as well. I just really overall agree that this is going to be a game we're going to want to target in DFS, and I don't think that's a hot take at all, Chris. No, man. It's um, Brandon Cooks, I believe Sean Smith was the player he beat for that 98-yard touchdown. Uh, I think it was last year. Uh, on the Saints in, in Oakland. So, I mean, Brandon Cooks, you know, we, this is one thing I think people have to look out for when it's wide receiver cornerback matchups. A lot of it is tough because wide receivers are going to move around a lot. They're, they're probably only going to face, unless a cornerback shadowing, only face a corner for about 50% of their snaps. Um, you know, it's going to be a lot of movement. They're going to go to the slot. They're going to go in motion. But um, one thing you have to look out for is just with, with a guy like Cooks is, is size to speed mismatches. And uh, you kind of alluded to it, Chris. The Oakland Raiders, you know, Sean Smith, he's a bigger guy. Um, a lot of these guys on the Oakland Raiders, they're, they're bigger guys who have stiff hips. Uh, they, so that, that's really tough to defend a player like Brandon Cooks who can not only have straight line speed that's going to be uh, better than, than a lot of these bigger guys, but also lateral quickness that's going to be faster than these uh, big guys with the stiff hips as well. All right, Chris, so – that's pretty much all we're going to say for now. I'm sure we'll have more to say maybe on this game a little bit later in the show. But when it comes to other games, we're looking at potential to go over the total. Where else can we look in week number 11? I think this. Uh, I think you have to right, go right back to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and, and their matchup on the road against the Miami Dolphins. And the first thing you have to look at with, you know, this is just a matchup of two teams with bad defenses. And, you know, yeah, the offenses have been underwhelming. The quarterbacks are certainly underwhelming. But I think anytime you have a game with a, a two bad defenses, that's and, – and, and the total is only 41 and a half. So it's not, it's not really too hard for this game to end up going over the total. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure that total will kind of keep ownership depressed a little bit. But, you know, two bad defenses. This Tampa Bay defense, um, one thing that started to become clear is that this is a defense that really struggles on the road. Tampa Bay has allowed 33 points per game on the road this season, and they've actually allowed 30 or more points in every single road game um, that they play, 34 to the Vikings, 38 to the Arizona Cardinals, 30 to the Buffalo Bills, and 32 the New Orleans Saints. And, and, and three of those offenses, well, at least two of those offenses, really aren't um, very good offenses this season. So um, that's something to watch. And then that's translated – straight to Tampa Bay's uh, game totals and combined points on the road. On the road, Tampa Bay plus their opponent are averaging 55.8 um, points per game. And the uh, three have been over 50 and all four are over 44. So um, again, the total is only 41 and a half right now. And Miami, their offense has been a lot better at home. They average 23.7 points per game in the three home games. I am not counting the, the London game, which was technically a home game for Miami, but it's obviously not in Miami. Um, and then Miami only 11 points per game in their other five, um, in their other six games. So over double the amount of points um, on offense when they're at home. So this just sets up as a situation 
where Miami, you know, is pretty much a league average offense at home. And, and when they go on the road, they're terrible. So you have a league average offense going against this defense that, that can't really stop anyone on the road. Tampa Bay did have some success um, at home blitzing against the New York Jets last week, but Miami is actually set up pretty well to beat the blitz. They can just throw those short little blitz beaters to Jarvis Landry. And now with Jay Ajayi out of the picture, Miami has two pass catching running backs in Kenyon Drake and Damian Williams that they can also throw quick passes to um, might surprise some people, but Jay Cutler is actually ninth in the league in completion percentage versus the blitz. That's per pro football focus um, in completion percentage versus pressure, excuse me. Um, and that's per pro football focus. So um, Miami's actually well equipped to, to handle uh, this Tampa Bay defense. Um, they, they are, they have not been good uh, all season long. We know that they're, they're still ranked dead last in schedule adjusted fantasy points led to wide receivers. They're 25th against uh, quarterbacks and on the other side of the ball you have this Tampa Bay offense um, and you know yes they have Ryan Fitzpatrick under center but they still have Mike Evans they still have Deshaun Jackson they still have Cameron Brait um, they still have Doug Martin and uh, Miami's run defense is starting to be a problem Tampa Bay's offense kind of really gets going when the run offense gets going and Miami's given up an average of 184 rushing yards per game over their last three to the Ravens, Raiders, and Panthers. And um, three running games, which kind of, you know, not exactly, you know, blowing anyone's socks off um, this season kind of all got, got right to different extents against Miami. Two, these two defenses combined, they're both in the bottom five in, in DVOA. So I, I just think that a lot of players in this game uh, could have some success. They're all pretty affordable uh, salaries outside of maybe – Mike Evans is a little high up there, but even he's, you know, I don't even think he's eight. He's not even 8K on either site. So um, a lot of options in this game and, and the low total might have some people kind of off of it. But one thing I do like about it is right now it opened at Miami minus three. It's actually a pick them right now. Um, anytime you have a close game, even if it's a low total game, that's how, that's how low scoring games become high scoring games. You have a close game and things start going back and forth and then teams end up needing to score um, an extra, uh, on an extra possession or two than they might normally would. So um, like, like going right back to the, the, the well here and targeting this, uh, these two bad defenses in, in, the, in the Dolphins and the Bucks. No surprise, we've talked about two bad defenses so far and tied at the bottom of adjusted sack rate on football outsiders, the Buccaneers and the Raiders. So no pass rush, going to be a problem for your defense. Now we're looking at the favorite side of things, Chris. You also mentioned the game that you think uh, favorite could do pretty well. Yeah, the Dallas um, Cowboys uh, are hosting the, the Eagles. Um, and so Eagles right now, as we record this, about four and a half point favorites. I really think that the Dallas Cowboys are going to have trouble um, not losing to the Eagles by more than that. Um, the, the Dallas defense, they're not going to have Sean Lee's nursing a hamstring injury. And that's been pivotal for their defense. He left the Atlanta game in the first quarter. And from the second quarter on, the Falcons put up 299 total yards, three touchdowns, and 24 points in the last three quarters. Now, this follows a similar trend because uh, of what was going on with that defense with and without Sean Lee coming into the game against Atlanta. Coming into that game with Sean Lee, the Cowboys have been allowing 18 points per game, 307 total yards, and 19 and a half first downs per game in six games. But without Lee, those jumped to 35 points per game, 377 total yards, and 24 and a half first down. So just a clear difference with Sean Lee. And that's because, you know, when you have a guy like Sean Lee in that middle, it's not just his play and what he's doing on a particular play, whether it be covering a running back or a tight end or, or, or stuffing the run or, or, or whatnot. It's his communication with the rest of the defense and him getting them into the right plays, him, him sniffing out what the offense is doing. Um, so you lose a lot, you know, not just Sean Lee's individual matchup when you lose a player like that in Sean Lee, and uh, this is going to be tough going against the Philadelphia Eagles, who are second in the league in points per game on offense. This is a really strong offense. They're clicking on all cylinders. And, of course, they just added Jay Ajayi to the mix, which gives them even another element. Corey Clement coming off a three-touchdown day. Um, Matt Collins is starting to play more snaps. He's a 6'4", 220-pound wide receiver who could give the smaller Dallas cornerbacks. Another, neither of their outside starters are six foot 200 pounds he could give them issues as well and we haven't even got to Zach Ertz we haven't even got to Alshon Jeffrey and guys like that so tough matchup for the Dallas defense as is and then on the other side of the ball you know in the first game without Ezekiel Elliott and Tyron Smith um, for the Cowboys in this 
uh, Dak Prescott era since the beginning of 2016. The Cowboys put up only 233 total yards against the Atlanta Falcons. That was the fewest ever in the Dak Prescott era outside of last week's week seven, last year's week 17, where the starters got pulled early. And the seven points that they scored is also tied for the fewest in the Dak Prescott era. Now, Zeke and Tyron Smith are not coming through that door this week. Uh, Tyron Smith just got ruled out um, not too long ago. So it's going to be a tough go for Dallas on both sides of the football. And I, and I think uh, Philadelphia um, probably should be a, a little heavier favorite than they are currently. And I think they're going to have a lot of success. I think you might still see a Cowboys receiver, maybe Des Bryant, somebody like that, get some volume in this game. But um, it's going to be a really tough goal for even a guy like Dak Prescott. This, this Eagles uh, defense has a strong front seven on the getting a little healthier in the secondary. Um, it's just a really tough matchup all around uh, for the Dallas Cowboys, even if they make some adjustments that, you know, just, this might hurt Jason Witten if they feel like they have to chip um, on, on to help the uh, left tackle. Now um, that, that could disrupt Jason Witten in the passing game or something like that. So, um, you know, got to be cautious this week with, with this Cowboys um, offense and really just their, their whole team and, and kind of look to exploit that with the Eagles. We've seen it multiple times this year where offensive linemen missing have given us some good defenses to attack in DFS and maybe some places to target. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show when we get to the chalk of how an offensive lineman missing uh, as well as some other circumstances could really lead to giving us pretty easy defense to select in DFS. Uh, Warren, now it's time to move on to offensive analytics and how it could affect some of our DFS rosters this week. I think people are going to look at the high total game in New Orleans and they're going to potentially get excited about a, an offense that is certainly capable against a pretty tough defense like the Vikings last week of putting up points. What's your take here on the Washington offense? Do you think they have enough to keep this game close and get into like a shootout situation in New Orleans? Yeah, my main concern in this game for the Redskins is that you know, the way that you want to play the Saints defense is you want to attack them on the ground first. And that's one of the things that the Buffalo Bills last week, they actually had some success doing that. But um, for whatever reason, you know, they, they I think um, in the first half, LeSean McCoy was averaging like seven yards per carry, had over a 50% success rate on his rushes. Tyrod Taylor was averaging like 10 yards per carry and had also over 50% success rate. But when he was passing the ball, he was like 3.7 yards per attempt and a 35% success rate. In the second half, one rush by LeSean McCoy, one rush by Tyrod Taylor. The problem was their run defense couldn't stop the run offense of the New Orleans Saints. And we saw what they ended up doing. You know, not only did they get mauled, but one of the reasons why their run defense was struggling so much is because Marcel Darius, they shipped him out down to Jacksonville. Well, the Washington Redskins are in somewhat of a similar situation in this game. Their offense is far more productive from a passing perspective, but they don't have that run. They don't have a, you know, a marquee running back like LaShawn McCoy. Uh, they've got Chris Thompson, who is one of the best receiving running backs in the league. But on carries behind center, I mean, the Redskins are trying to utilize this guy, I guess, in part because of their lack of confidence in Samaj P. Ryan. They're trying to utilize, especially in crunch situations, you know, Chris Thompson out there, they put him out there against the Vikings in field goal range down by 11 points late in that game. Last week, they put him out there on third and one. He got stuffed. And then they ran him again on fourth and one, you know, and, and he didn't get it once again. So they're trusting him to run the ball, but I would not. I don't, I don't think he's, he's great out of the backfield, but I would not really be rely, relying on him as a traditional running back. Um, they don't really have – that guy who can do damage on the ground and it is twofold. Number one, that's the weak spot, the vulnerability of the Saints defense. But number two, you're keeping Drew Brees and that offense off the field. And for the Washington Redskins, we know that they've got some defensive issues themselves. Um, they've been much better against the pass, but against the run, they lost, when they lost Jonathan Allen, uh, that was, that was big. And they also lost a couple of other players, um, uh, they lost Will Compton uh, just last week, who was subbing in for Mason Foster. And Mason Foster was, you know, one of the key linebackers that they started the season with and were having a ton of great production. So that right up the gut there, this team has lost several solid run-stopping forces. So it's even more important to keep your defense healthy on the sideline by maintaining these longer drives on the field. And I'm worried that they don't have the run game to do that. So while 
I'm not down on Kirk Cousins here, and I'm not down on, you know, the overall potential for the Redskins. Uh, like, for instance, you know, I can tell you the, the, the sharper sports bettors, the wise guys, so to speak, have been going against the Saints for a number of weeks, and they're going against them again in this game. Um, you know, but they got, they got burned, as did I. I. I thought the Bills could hang, and that was a, obviously a mistake last week. But the New Orleans Saints, you know, if you can't run the ball on these guys, control the clock, and keep Drew Brees off, and you have problems stopping the run yourself due to injuries or otherwise – it's going to be a problem. And that's my big concern here for the Redskins is that while people look at the overall strength of their def- of their offense and they are a top 15 offense, they've gone up against the 11th most difficult schedule of opposing defenses. Um, they're great at throwing the football to their running backs, but they just don't really have the key edges that I think you would need to be able to defeat this defense of the Saints in the most efficient manner possible. They may still get it done. They may still get the cover. The Redskins are a good team overall. Uh, they're better than what a lot of people expect out of them. You know, they've exceeded some expectations against a pretty difficult schedule year to date. Uh, but I'm, I'm just concerned you allow 38 points at home to Case Keenum and the Vikings offense. Now you're going on the road against Drew Brees and a team that can run the ball much more efficiently. Um, you know, they, they, don't, they don't have quite the same level of receivers. I mean, Adam, Adam Thielen – uh, and, and the receivers that the Minnesota Vikings have are actually, you know, exceeding expectations at, with, with Diggs and Thielen. But um, New Orleans, you know, they're really not exceeding expectations from the receiving standpoint. But they're such a well-rounded team, and Drew Brees is still there. I'm a little bit concerned about the Redskins having as good a day as they could have if they had a better run game offensively. I encourage you guys to think about that analysis, and if you think that the Redskins are going to struggle on offense, what is that going to mean for your DFS roster? How are you going to tell the story of that being the case? You know, certainly there's going to be some merit to the Saints running game in that situation. There could be some merit to the Saints defense, but however you choose to interpret that analysis, just know that uh, if they do in fact struggle, you're going to want to build your DFS rosters with that in mind. Chris, speaking of building DFS rosters with a matchup on an offensive perspective in mind, I think a lot of people are looking at the New York Giants these days and seeing a lot of holes on defense. Landon Collins not playing well at all. He's been uh, certainly allowing some production to the tight end position. That gives us a pretty clear indication how we can attack them, don't you think? Yeah, this is really a, a smash spot for Travis Kelsey this week. Um, the Giants, as you mentioned, Landon Collins, for as good as he was last year, now he hasn't been as good this year, but his Weakness, either way, is in coverage. He ranks just 47th in PFS coverage grades uh, among safeties. Darren Thompson, their other safety, also not in the top 32 either. And then, uh, you know, if you're not covering a tight end with a safety, you're going to be covering him most likely with a linebacker. And the Giants just put Keenan Robinson on the injured reserve He was their best coverage linebacker this year. He had a coverage grade of 75.9 out of 100 from PFF. No other Giants linebacker is even as high as 50. So really abysmal coverage from these Giants linebackers. And that is why they rank 31st in schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed to the tight end position. They have actually given up a touchdown to a tight end in every single game this season, which is absurd. So, uh, you know, Travis Kelsey really in a good spot. Andy Reid coming out of the bye. Um, We know he's a schemer. We know he knows how to attack opponents' weaknesses. I expect him to do that with Travis Kelsey. Um, In all those – there's been three other games this season where Kelsey has faced a defense that is ranked 21st or below in schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed to the position. And in all three of those games – He's had at least seven catches, at least 100 yards, and he has scored a touchdown, uh, 8-103-1 against Philly, 7-111-1 against the Redskins, and 7-133-1 and against the Denver Broncos. So this is a situation where um, we do at 4-for-4, four four, again, I mentioned, you know, thinking and probabilities is probably one of the most important things um, in DFS that's not widely talked about. You know, every player kind of has – 
you know, there, there, there's a probability that he's going to hit, you know, cash game value or, or value that you want, whatever that might be. And there's a probability that he will not. And the same thing for GPPs, you know, you have a probability that you're going to win a contest. You have a probability that you're going to cash. You have a probability that you're going to not. Um, and, and for, for, for Kelsey um, this week, his cash game odds um, on, on DraftKings are really the highest, the third highest um, among all players on the entire slate, which we don't usually see um, when we kind of put these together. We usually see running backs kind of at the top because they're just so predictable and so dependable. But, but this week, even with Kelsey's salary being at 7,300 on DraftKings, still the number uh, three player overall on the slate and beating um, you know, the, the other tight ends, you know, even a guy like Rob Gronkowski by about eight, eight percentage points in that metric. So um, really something to keep in mind. Obviously that depends on your individual projection. If you had Kelsey a little higher or lower, that, that would change. But um, same thing on FanDuel. He's, he's one of the highest uh, players in terms of probability to hit cash game value on the site. And, you know, for a tight end, that's pretty, pretty unheard of. Um, and I think that just speaks to, to how consistently the Giants have been getting uh, beat by players at that position. Yeah, going back to the idea of, of hedging, Chris, you know, when you've got Alex Smith and Travis Kelsey and Kareem Hunt and Tyreek Hill all potentially in play for DFS this week, you know, certainly onslaughts have worked in the past. Maybe you can load all four of these guys up in a single lineup and expect it to work. But this is a situation where if you are multi-entering tournaments, if you are making more than one cash game, you might want to consider alternate universes where certain guys uh, may or may not go off. Like Travis Kelsey, amongst those guys, you're saying has the best odds of success. And that's certainly somebody that you should be looking at very closely for DFS in week number 11. When we turn to the defensive side of the ball, Warren, you know, we've talked a lot about the Jacksonville defense this year. What about the Cleveland defense that they'll face in the Jacksonville running game? What can we learn about what's going on in Cleveland as far as the run game is concerned? Yeah, I mean, uh, once again, we're, we're not doing anything groundbreaking here, uh, talking about a, a matchup like this where the defenses are already supposed to have a pretty successful day. But when we talk about Leonard Fournette, I mean, you know, some youngsters, like, they, they say dumb things, and uh, this is one that this guy's probably not going to live down for a while. But if, if you just Google Leonard Fournette doesn't like the cold, um, he, he came out with some quotes this week saying how he hates the cold, um, he's not ready for it, he sleeps in the heat, he's obviously from uh, New Orleans, played at LSU. You know, the coldest game that he's even played in uh, was in Arkansas. I mean – He's never played anywhere colder than where he was in Arkansas. Let's be real. This game that he's going to, I mean, in the winter when he's playing up north, like you just can't say things like that. He's talking about, you know, mentally in his mind, he's he's um, thinking about how hard it feels when you get hit and the weather's cold or when you fall onto the ground and the ground is hard and cold. I mean, like uh, you've got eight-year-old kids who could care less about the cold compared to him. And all he wants to talk about in the media is how, He's just, it's mentally in his head. And I think that's one of the things that you see around this league. It's about toughness, but it's about mental toughness a lot too. You see a lot of guys warming up and just, you know, shirtless, like in the freezing cold and going out there and playing in short sleeves. And it's, it's not about, um, it's not about the actual, how you end up ultimately doing. It's about your mindset as to whether or not you're going to let this affect you. And clearly, Leonard Fournette's already made that decision. Now, he, he's, his ankle is injured, and he may not even play in this game. So talking too much about him for this particular week is somewhat or could be somewhat irrelevant if he ultimately does not play. But here's the issue in this game. You've got the Cleveland Browns defense. If they can do one thing, it's stopping the run. And you've got potential wins in this game. What did we see last week? Leonard Fournette, whether it was his ankle or – just performance, was not playing very well against the L.A. Chargers. And they didn't give him very many touches. They ultimately just took him out of the game. And what we ended up seeing was we saw a lot of passing from Blake Bortles, tons and tons of passing against that defense. Well, if you could pass on the, the, the Browns, that would be the easiest path to victory. The problem is going to be that the weather is not working in your favor with the wind speed. So it's going to be difficult for Blake Bortles to be throwing the ball down the field against this defense on account of the wind. And it's going to be difficult for them to run the ball all that effectively if Leonard Fournette does not play um, 
or if even if he does play but is worried about the cold weather, uh, you know, that's, that's an impediment before the first kickoff even occurs. So I think that there's, you know, I would not be looking at anybody, even though Jacksonville is favored, it's a big spot for them. Um, they got that overtime victory last week. Their defense is fired up. They think that the Browns should be 0-16 this year. Uh, they, they think that the Browns are a joke. Like, they need, they need to watch out because I think it's their defense that's going to have to win them this game because I'm worried that their offense will not be able to run the ball. They won't be able to throw the ball all that well. And, you know, you look at their implied team total, and some people might be overlooking the matchup in enough detail, but the matchup is not very good for their running offense. And with the wind, their ability to throw the ball, I think it's going to be difficult for them to hit that implied team total. That was awesome. You know, I thought we were going to see the great Warren Sharp saunter slowly down Narrative Street with the Leonard Fournette hates the cold narrative. But then all of a sudden, as he jabs with that, he comes back and finishes strong with the right hook on the analysis on the Cleveland defense. That was absolutely awesome. And uh, that's interesting about Leonard Fournette and the mental toughness of players because uh, he actually kind of struck me as a guy who was kind of a tough runner. So it was actually surprising to hear. Yeah, I, I don't I don't quite get it. Like I said, he's probably going to regret it because other guys around the league don't forget it. You know, they'll they'll, they'll tackle him on the ground and hold him down there for an extra second, you know, to, to let him feel that cold ground. Um, you know, guys around the league, I'm not even talking this week because he might not even play, but down the road, look, you, you are a warm weather team. You're playing in Jacksonville, but guess what? Like most of the better teams in the league are not from Jacksonville. You got Pittsburgh and New England and you've got Green Bay and there's so many good teams that play up north that you're going to ultimately have to win games late in the year in those locations. And I don't know if Leonard Fournette expected the NFL season to run from July to October and, and he wouldn't have to worry about that too much, but it's something you're going to have to deal with. Might not want to speak publicly about the fact that you just don't like the cold because um, there's nothing anybody can do about the temperature. Like it's out of your control. So you're better off not worrying about it, prepare mentally for it and don't talk about it publicly. Incredible. All right, Chris, let's see you follow that. What do you got here? on defensive analytics that can help us in week number 11? Uh, let's go with uh, – <laughs> it's just a funny – funny, and you know it's funny about Leonard Fournette and the code. It's like we, we've seen him, like, while running, like, you know, tell a defender, like, come on, hit me. Like, he, he might just be so comfortable in his own skin that he's just – He's just telling the truth, and like it might be the guys who, that are really scared of the cold that that aren't other are the ones that aren't talking about it. Because I I don't know if I'm a defender if I want to see Leonard Fournette in, in any temperature, um, anytime. But uh, DeAndre Hopkins this week it's going to be interesting because he his price, especially on DraftKings, plummeted. He's got this matchup with the Arizona Cardinals. Of course, that's Patrick Peterson on number one wide receivers, and the numbers back it up. Arizona 5.2 targets allowed to wide receiver ones and 42.5 yards allowed per game. That's both NFL lows per football outsiders. Patrick Peterson is first in the NFL in uh, snaps and coverage played per reception. So he's only given up a catch every 29.7 snaps. So um, as you can see, uh, you know, that's about two, two per game. And, you know, he's, av he's actually allowed only 12 passes to be caught in his coverage all season. That is Patrick Peterson on 32 targets. That's a 37.5% catch rate, only 5.5 yards per attempt. So DeAndre Hopkins has been averaging 15 targets per game in Tom Savage's two most recent starts even if you kind of split the difference and say well Arizona's averaging five given up to wide receiver ones and Hopkins is averaging 15 even if that's 10 targets um you know that that's there's still going to be a significant um target share to to, to, to go away from Hopkins and, and kind of cutting into to what he normally does so I know he's going to probably still get at least a reasonable amount of ownership just because he is so cheap and when, when you're in it when you're doing projections it's kind of hard to not project Hopkins for high volume just because he's really the only guy um, on that Houston Texan team and Tom Savage has been forcing it in his direction but I do think he will have some trouble this week and uh, a little later on in the show before we get out of here I'll talk about kind of the effect of that and maybe someone you can target instead. Yeah so let's move on to the chalk Warren. Uh, we've got Rex Burkhead showing up this week as a guy people are going to want to roster in DFS, and I think that's very interesting. I think people are looking on a site like DraftKings where it's full PPR. 
to take advantage of his versatility and that high total game in New England. Uh, or, you know, aside from Burkhead, where else have you kind of looked as a popular player or someone that you think is pretty uh, on, the, on the more obvious side that we can take advantage of for the week? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've already, you know, to kind of talked about Burkhead. I do like Burkhead um, a lot here. There's a lot to like with him. Um, I think there's also a lot to like with uh, Rob Gronkowski. So, of course, then naturally you would think that Tom Brady should be a guy from the chalk perspective, you know, all three of those Patriots players. Um, having a lot of success. Though, though, I mean, to be honest with you, that's kind of where I'm looking in terms of a guy with the chalk that I think is really going to um, perform. I, I like what uh, Chris said earlier about um, Travis Kelsey being in a great situation. Uh, th- there's a few players who are just in really good situations from a chalk perspective this week. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to stray too much from that analysis. I, I really, I really think that there's uh, – Ultimately, points in time, you talk about hedging, you talk about uh, that sort of thing. But when you when you have a guy who's just mispriced tremendously, um, there, there's no point in my mind, and we, you guys have talked about this before on here, uh, being over-owned on certain players that are mispriced. And while a lot of people will have exposure to that guy, and let's pretend it's like at a 45%, 30 45% clip, I'm not sure what your guys' ownership forecasts are. That's where your expertise kicks in. But, I mean, being above that ownership percentage is not necessarily a bad thing to do when you've got a player who's, who's just mispriced to a tremendous extent. And um, if it doesn't hit, it doesn't hit. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it was uh, the wrong decision to be uh, a little bit top-heavy on a player like that. So, um, I mean, Burkhead's – the other guys are priced in line. They're chalk, but they're priced in line with what they should be. Burkhead's the odd example of a guy who is – you know, he played prime time, so his price wasn't updated in time, and uh, and he's he's got he just offers too much value this week. Yeah, and I think that's why you'll see his ownership just uh, you know reaching some pretty high levels here in week number eleven. Chris, another uh, DFS roster I think is going to have a high ownership is the Chargers defense, and I think that one of the reasons that most people are going to look to is the rookie rookie quarterback Nathan Peterman starting for the Bills, but I also think the fact that Cordy Glenn did not practice for two days and is very likely out is going to have a huge impact on this team. What else have you seen from the Chargers side of the ball that makes them so obvious in DFS? Yeah, I think when you just start to look at and break down this matchup and break down the, the two teams, you start to really see a, a kind of a mismatch here for the Chargers defense against this Bills offense. Um, you know, starting with the fact that the Chargers got one of their key players in that front seven, Denzel Perryman, back on the interior he's a linebacker the Chargers uh, as we probably have talked about on this show before and I'm sure people have talked about it throughout the industry is the Chargers are not a very good run defense or at least they were not um, without Perriman he comes back last week Chargers are allowing 166 rush 0.5 rushing yards per game and they go and they face the number one rushing offense in the league last week in the Jacksonville Jaguars and now the Jaguars did have a 56 yard fake punt run um, but aside from that the the uh, Chargers held them to 26 carries for 79 yards that's just three yards per carry Leonard Fournette only 33 yards on 17 carries and we already know that that's a big problem for Buffalo because why was Tyrod Taylor benched I mean Tyrod Taylor was benched because as good of a quarterback at he, as he is at with not turning the ball over or at, you know, running at certain times, at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that Tyrod Taylor doesn't really see throws. He does, he misses throws as in like guys will be open and he will not throw the ball to them. And that's why you saw him kind of checking it down a bunch on third down and eventually get benched. And, you know, that becomes a problem if Buffalo can't run the ball, because once you, if you put a, a, the bills in obvious passing situations, it's a, it's a problem. And now you have a rookie quarterback. So you're going to need to lead on that run game, no matter what. And if the charges are going to be able to sniff out the run in, in a dish, they were already a, a pretty good um, pass defense. One of, one of the, the better pass defenses uh, in, in the league. So, you know, they have Casey Hayward. Um, they, they ranked six in pass defense DVOA right now. So, this is a good pass defense already. If they can start to come on and slow down this Bills run game, which, by the way, the Bills are traveling across country to California 
Um, and the home field advantage for the Chargers isn't really a home field advantage. Let's, let's first get that out of the way. But um, Buffalo has historically struggled on the road. They this year they allow only they average only three point two yards per carry on the road compared to four point two at home. They also average one point four yards less per pass attempt on the road, um, only five point four six point eight at home. And even more troubling, uh, you mentioned Cordy Glenn. The Buffalo Bills are allowing four point eight sacks per game on the road. Only 1.8 sacks per game at home now with the charges. You know, you have no Cordy Glenn for the Bills. You have Joey Bosa, nine, nine and a half sacks. Uh, Melvin Ingram, eight and a half sacks. Five, number five and six in the league in sacks. So this is a tough front to play against. Perriman only helps that. The Chargers should be able to stop the run. Um, this is the first start for a fifth, fifth round rookie QB. Um, I know Buffalo has some of its skill position players back, but it's going to be a real uphill battle. And, you know, any, you know, any type of mistakes, the Chargers should be able to kind of capitalize on it. And, and it's just a really good spot um, for them to kind of dominate defensively in, in this fifth round rookies first start of traveling across the country. Bills have an entire receiving core of discarded, you know, talk about the Island of Misfit toys. It's Kelvin Benjamin and Jordan Matthews both traded away, just absolutely thrown in the dumpster. Deontay Thompson, you've got, Andre Holmes, I mean, it's just, it's just a mess. I'm extremely disappointed in my bills. Warren, let's talk about some guys who we can find this week who are going to be under the radar, maybe some value that's to be had out there, not being talked about as heavily. Where have you landed as far as a value option in week number 11? One player that um, I guess because he's on Monday Night Football might not get into uh, – get worked in enough, but might as well talk about him anyways because I know that there are some slates that you can use that incorporate Monday Night in there. Um, I think that there's an edge to a guy that isn't getting a whole lot of publicity, but that's J.D. McKissick for the uh, Seattle Seahawks. I think that you look at the Atlanta Falcons, um, it's a team that struggles, obviously, to defend passes to running backs. But this year they look better, but that's primarily because they have not faced many good uh, running back pass offenses. If you look at their schedule, they've played the easiest schedule of opposing running back pass offenses so far this year, the easiest in the league. Um, so they rank seventh best in terms of success rate against those running back passes. But like I said, they've played a very easy schedule. I know Pete Carroll's talking about Eddie Lacy coming back, but Eddie Lacy sucks. He sucks on first down. He's the worst in the NFL. Uh, they cannot use less Eddie Lacy, in my opinion. I mean, less is more with Lacy. Get him off the field if possible. And hopefully use a little bit more with J.D. McKissick in the passing game. Um, I think that there's opportunities here. And one thing I will tell you, uh, just in early betting here for this game, is that people are actually betting the uh, Atlanta Falcons like they've got, you know, what is it, Biff's Almanac uh, for the sports almanac. Like, they, they think that Atlanta's going to crush here. They, they, they rarely like taking underdogs, but when they do, um, the public is all over the Atlanta Falcons in this spot. You look at the secondary of the Seattle Seahawks without – uh, a couple key players, I think they probably will get Earl Thomas back. But from what I've heard, Cam Chancellor is no. And uh, obviously, they lost Richard Sherman to a torn Achilles. Um, it's a defense that is going to be problematic in the secondary. The secondary is one of the things that really made this unit overall more formidable. Now they're going up against the Atlanta Falcons. Obviously, Atlanta pulled off this huge victory over Dallas last week. Looked incredible doing it. Um, you do have to check out the status of Dwayne Brown. Uh, the, the Seattle Seahawks offensive line could be without, you know, without Dwayne Brown, which would be massive because we just saw uh, what happened with the, the right, right uh, edge rusher there last week against the left tackle down in that Dallas game and all the sacks that were recorded against Dak Prescott from that side of the football with Adrian Claiborne. So that's going to be an issue potentially, but um, even more reason to dump off quick passes to J.D. McKissick if some of the pressure – is coming and I'm looking forward to seeing that matchup because if Russell Wilson is under any type of pressure you know those deep explosive passes down the field are harder to come by um, his scrambling ability though is incredible so he can make that magic work but I think some dump offs to JD McKissick are in store here um, at any rate I, I think he's a guy where a lot of people are looking to maybe some of the other players and, and uh, Doug Baldwin and Russell Wilson here, uh, if they're looking at Seahawks, I think McKissick offers a pretty intriguing guy who's uh, probably going to have uh, lower ownership. I'm excited for the Seahawks offense, especially if 
And I say a big if because we don't know that the Seahawks defense is going to struggle now without Richard Sherman. But by chance that they do start to surrender a few more points per game, maybe find themselves trailing more often in games. I'm very interested to see if the Seahawks offense can carry them to success. We know Russell Wilson's done it in the past, and uh, he makes plays out of structure when he's under pressure. And, uh, you know, you mentioned a guy like McKissick and some other guys in that offense that could really benefit if that's the case. Uh, Chris, under-the-radar guy, week number 11, what do you got? Yeah, well, earlier I mentioned that the Arizona Cardinals, uh, with Patrick Peterson, obviously very stout against number one wide receivers, really translates into the bottom line numbers where they're just limiting the targets that go in that direction. And, um, you know, if DeAndre Hopkins' target goes down at all from 15 per game that he's been getting under Savage, I think the number one player that's probably going to benefit here is Bruce Ellington. He is the uh, Houston Texans slot receiver, um, kind of now been their de facto number two because Will Fuller has been banged up. He's not going to play in this game. And Ellington has eight targets in each of the last two games. And head coach Bill O'Brien came out and said he wants to get Ellington even more involved. And I think that's important in a game like this, because even with the Cardinals shutting down number one wide receivers, they still rank just 23rd in schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed uh, to the wide receiver position overall. So they're still vulnerable at the other wide receiver spots, you know, to, and so Ellington is a guy that should be able to, uh, take advantage of that the Cardinals you know uh, they, they rank 11th in DVOA to the left side 10th to the right side but only 23rd to the middle of the field Ellington's going to see targets in the middle of the field playing that slot um, probably also see a little uptick for maybe a guy like CJ Fedorowicz or, or even Lamar Miller on some dump off passes but I think Ellington kind of combines that that higher target ceiling you know he's already been getting eight per game over the last two with Savage um, kind of combines with higher target ceiling. He can do some things down the field as well as kind of your traditional slot role. So I think he has some some pretty decent upside. Um, I, I think he'll probably you know gain a little steam ownership-wise just because I know some people that are pretty smart that are probably going to be talking about him. But I still don't think the mass general public is going to be all over this guy, especially with another guy like uh, Dontrell Inman, who will have a tougher matchup. He might go up against Darius Slay and, and, and some of the Lions defense, which has been a little tougher. But especially when you have a guy like Dontrell Inman also down there in that price range um, that you can use if you want, I think Ellington's ownership will be um, in check. And I think he, he offers some pretty good upside for a guy way down there in that pricing tier that we don't usually see. Excellent stuff, Chris. Folks, an hour is not enough for us to get all the information that we have to you. So I encourage you to head to rotogrinders.com, check out RG Premium, get multiple sports for one price. Head over to sharpfootballanalysis.com, take advantage of what Warren's offering and really see everything that it is that they can do there on that site as well as sharpfootballstats.com and of course 444.com. Uh, excellent information that cannot be found elsewhere. So I encourage you to take advantage of all those resources for the upcoming week. That's going to do it for Sharp DFS Analysis. For Chris Raybon, for Warren Sharp, I'm Chris Tremino. I'm wishing you the best of luck in all your contests this week.